The scripture reading this morning is 2 John 1 through 3. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Well, good morning, Parkway. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. Hope that you're healthy. Hope the old uh, Kung flu hasn't gotten you down. Today, we're gonna be starting a new book of the Bible, 2 John. Now, don't worry. 2 John and 3 John are much, much shorter than 1 John. In fact, they're both only one chapter. So in referring to a book with one chapter, we typically won't say the chapter. We'll just say the verses. So in this case, if you'll turn in your Bible to 2 John verses one through three, that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're going to get through uh, 2 John over the next few weeks, then 3 John, and then we are going to uh, take a smattering of psalms, and we're going to work through certain psalms and uh, look at that before getting into 1 Corinthians. So there's kind of a preview of some exciting things coming up here at the life of the church. Well, as we get into this letter today, we are seeing an introduction. We're seeing a letter begin that John is going to be writing to this particular church. And so what I did this week is I looked up some different Uh, short letters that I thought would be funny. So there's something that people do, and it goes something like this. Dear, and you pick somebody, dear Jerry Jones, you're the problem with the Cowboys. Sincerely, Dallas. So you address somebody, you give kind of a funny sentence, and then you say, sincerely, whoever it is. So I looked up a few of these online because we're getting into a new letter where there's gonna be an author writing to a crowd and signing it sincerely, and here are a few that I found. Dear America, you produced Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber is your punishment. Sincerely, Canada, okay? Or this one, dear J.K. Rowling, your books are entirely unrealistic. I mean, a ginger kid with two friends? Sincerely, anonymous. Or this one, this one's biblical. Dear Noah, we could have sworn you said the ark wasn't leaving until five. Sincerely, the unicorns. Or my favorite one, dear John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, Your name is my name too. Sincerely, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, okay? So these are kind of uh, these little funny, quick introductions. They're meant to be jokes. Well, today we're gonna get an introduction. We're just getting into the introduction here in, uh, in 2 John, and then we'll deal with the rest of the letter as we go along in the next few weeks. But you need to understand all of the Bible is equally inspired. Not just the verses you love and you crochet on a pillow at home, but the weird genealogies, the, beginning of, the beginnings of letters or the endings at the end of a letter or an epistle or whatever it is, it's all inspired by God. And so God wants to teach us something today, even just looking at this introduction to this letter. So let me pray for us and then we will get into the text. Almighty God, we thank you that you are great. We confess that uh, there is none like you. We ask that you would guide us and help us and forgive us and encourage us. I pray for uh, just our congregation in this weird season, that where people are fearful they wouldn't be, that you would keep us well, that you would keep us encouraged, and we look forward to gathering together as a church body again soon. We ask all of it in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, again, 2 John 1 through 3, let's start in verse 1, the first half of verse 1, what's called 1a. So let's do that. It says this, the elder to the elect lady and her children. What a strange way to start this off. Okay, who is this elder? Who is the elect lady? Who are her children? What is going on here? Let's break it down one little word and phrase at a time. It starts off with the phrase, the 
elder. This is the Greek word presbyteros. It's where you get the term Presbyterian because that's a uh, church denomination where there are elders, presbyteroi, that help lead and guide the church. This term doesn't always refer to the church office, nor does this term always refer to somebody who's old. For example, Timothy is a church leader and Paul tells uh, uh, him not to let the church look down on him because of his age. Remember, the life expectancy back then was a lot shorter than it is today. So what we consider to be an old man and what they consider to be an old man would be different. So the term doesn't necessarily mean the church office of elder, nor does it necessarily mean that the person is an old man. But in this case, I think both of those are true, okay? In this case, both of those are true. The most likely candidate for who is writing this letter is the Apostle John, okay? It's the Apostle John. And so what John is doing, the way we know that it's John, by the way, there's a few ways. First of all, when we look at this letter in Greek compared to other writings by John, the style is very, very similar. The wording is similar. The syntax is similar. You can just tell. John's first language was probably not Greek, by the way. It was probably like Aramaic or Hebrew or something like that because John's Greek is not, it's very simple, Right? It's almost like reading a Dr. Seuss book when you read 1 John and 2 John. It says things like uh, the darkness, you know, the, the light is good, the darkness is bad, do what you should or you'll be sad. It's something like that. It's very simple. It's very plain. It's not like Hebrews, which has a more elegant Greek, or like Luke, uh, his Greek is a little bit more advanced. So we can tell that this is John, first of all, by the similarities in writing, second of all, by the similarities in theology. In all these letters, he's gonna be refuting these false teachers. He talks about light and dark. He talks about truth versus falsehood. Same kind of themes that we see here. We also see in the Gospel of John. Additionally, this is the figure that the church has almost universally, there have been a few exceptions, almost universally attributed to the Apostle John uh, even very early on. So John is most likely the one who is writing this letter and he's using elder here kind of as a title, as one who's a leader. In the same way that the president might sign something as the president and you know who that is, in the same way John is writing as the elder but the church that he's writing to knows who that is, okay? Now, why does he call himself an elder? Well, here's the simple reason. There are three offices when it comes to the church. There are apostles, capital A apostles, the guys that saw the risen Christ, that wrote scripture, that were uh, commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. There are elders and there are deacons, okay? There are no more apostles today in the capital A sense. There are people that call themselves apostles, but you should really just call those people prideful, okay? If you're a church planner, just call yourself a church planner. So there are no more capital A, real apostles today. There are elders then, and then there are deacons. These are the two offices that are remaining in the church. An elder is one of a group of elders, and elders are in charge of governing the church, spiritual guidance, and teaching, okay? Deacons are not a governing body, they're a serving body. They help with the administration of the church. They help get things off the elder's plate so that the elders can do discipleship stuff, can do teaching stuff, can do doctrine stuff, okay? So why does John here call himself an elder? Well, for the simple case that if you are this higher office, an apostle, which is over all the churches, the church is founded on the prophets and the apostles, the New Testament will say, then by default, you're obviously over this individual church. If you're this higher office, then by default, you are this lower office. And so what John is doing is he's saying, it's me. You guys know who I am. And he's referring him to himself as an elder, probably as this position of authority so that his audience will hear uh, what he has to say. Now, John is not the only one that does this. Peter does this. So I'll give you an example. First Peter 5.1, Peter, who's also an apostle, says this. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Notice that if you are an apostle and over all the churches, then by default, you're also over individual churches. So I think that's what's going on here with the elder. Now, what is going on with the next part of this verse? To the elect lady and her children. Who the heck is that? How should we understand it? Okay. Well, this term, when it says lady, is a term of respect. So think like in the Middle Ages, like my lord and my lady. That, that's kind of the term. The Greek word for lord is kurios, and here it's simply the female form of that, curia. Okay. So this is not just a girl. It's, uh, this term lady is a term of respect. Okay. It's a term of uh, respect, like again, thinking of the Middle Ages like a lady that's over land or a castle or something like that. And so it's a term of respect. Now, who is this lady? There's a bunch of different interpretations on who this elect lady is. But really, it boils down to two, okay? Some people think it's an individual lady, okay? Like it's just one individual lady. Others think, though, that it is a reference to the church. Now, on, on the first place, people will say that this is just written to a particular lady. Maybe this lady has kids. That's why it says, and her children. Uh, some have gone so far as to even say that this lady's name is elect, despite the fact that that's not a very common name going on in the first century. Like you might name your daughter, I don't know, Haley or something like that. This girl's name is Eklekta in Greek, elect. This is my daughter, elect. This is Susie and this is elect or something like that, okay? Now, I don't think that's the case. I don't think this is written to an individual. I think that the elect lady here is a reference to the church to which John is writing, okay? Now, let me give you some proof of why I believe that. A few things. First of all, much of the letter in Greek is written in the second person plural, which, which means that John's probably writing to a group. He's writing to a church instead of just using the second person singular. Second, the word church in Greek is feminine, ekklesia. So it makes sense that John would use some type of, uh, you know, feminine term or something like that to refer to the church. More importantly, and theologically, God's people are constantly referred to as his wife, as his bride. Israel is called a woman in Isaiah. The church is constantly called the bride of Christ, especially in places like Revelation. And so it would make sense to call the church the thing the New Testament calls the church, which is the bride, this elect lady. Additionally, it mentions her children, which is probably a reference to church members, Okay, that's probably who her children are. To this church, including her members, is probably what John is saying. 1 Peter 5.13, this is interesting, refers to another church as she and says that she's chosen, i.e. elect. 1 Peter 5.13 says, she, that's a reference to a church, who is at Babylon, who is likewise elect or chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. But in case you're not convinced yet, in case I haven't convinced you with all that proof that he's writing to a church, verse 13 in this very same letter is just the nail in the coffin to prove this point, okay? He's writing to this, he says, elect lady and her children. Here's how John signs the end of his letter. Second John 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. To, to me, that seems so clear. How do we know it's a church and its members? Because he ends the letter, not by just saying, it's me, John but by saying another lady, i.e. another church, who also has children, members, writes to you, okay? So most likely what's going on is John is writing to a church. That's basically what is going on here. Now, here we see kind of this beautiful term of endearment for Christ's church, the elect lady. It's almost, like a, it's almost like a loving pet name. You know what a pet name is? It's like if you're in a relationship, sometimes you'll call the person honey or sugar, or sweetie, or something like that. I looked up a few of these. Here are some that are especially weird. Snugglekins, 
which is just way too much as a pet name. Gummy bear. If my wife came up and I'm like eating a bag of Doritos and she's like, hey, my little gummy bear, I would put that bag of Doritos down and I would go for a run. That one seems to have a little bit of an edge on it to call someone gummy bear. Here's another pet name I saw online, my everything. Oh, these people have not been married very long, okay? They have not yet found out that your spouse makes a terrible idol. My everything as a pet name. Snookums, Snickers, Chubby Bunny, also not a helpful, not a helpful uh, pet name. It seems to imply a weight issue. Martin Luther did this with his wife. His wife's name was Catherine, and so he called her Lord Katie. Sometimes he would call her My Rib, right? As like a reference to Eve being taken from Adam's rib, kind of this pet name. Well, here you see this beautiful term for Christ's church, the elect lady. You are supposed to realize here that Christ loves his church. She is elect. She is his bride. Let me say this as strongly as I can, especially to a group of Protestants. There is no salvation outside of the church, okay? Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that in the Roman Catholic sense. I don't mean that there's not salvation outside of the Roman Catholic system of uh, sacraments or something like that. Nor do I mean that in addition to faith in Christ, you have to join a church to be saved. I don't mean that. What I mean by that phrase, there's no salvation outside of the church, is what the reformers mean when they talk about it, which is simply this. There is no saying that I want to be Christ's bride and also not be Christ's bride. You don't get both. If you follow Christ, you must be a part of his bride. Those two go together. You don't get to say that you love Christ and hate his girl. For the same reason that you don't get to say you love me and you hate my wife, Katie. It doesn't work, it's a package deal. And so if you are following Christ, one of the things that we've seen constantly that John will say is that you must love the church. You must love fellow believers. You must not follow the heretics and the false teachers. You must be a part of the body of Christ. And so I think that's what's going on here with this term. Now notice this phrase before we get on to the next, uh, next part of the passage here. Notice that she is called elect. Notice that she's called elect. This is one of those words that people stress out about I've even heard people say things like, I don't believe in predestination or I don't believe in election, despite the fact that those words occur throughout the Bible. It's like saying, I don't believe in the word the. It's all over the Bible. The question is, what does it mean? We see this kind of language constantly. Let me give you a few passages. Luke 18, seven. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Romans eleven seven. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 1 Timothy 5.21 says, even angels are elect in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you see this kind of term used constantly for God's people, this, this, the elect, the chosen. Now here's my question for you in light of this passage. Does God elect individuals or does he just elect groups? What some people will say who are not reformed, like we are here at Parkway, people that are more Arminian, they will say, God doesn't elect individuals, Zach. He doesn't say, Bob, you know, you're going to heaven and Janet, you're going to hell. What God does, notice that it's the church that's said to be elect. What God does is not elect individuals, he just elects groups. He elects Israel and not the other nations, or he elects the church and uh, you know, not other religious groups or something like that. Or if you're Karl Barth, the, the one that, Christ, uh, that God elects is simply Christ. And then if you belong to him, and he also is gonna save the whole world because it gets into a little bit of universalism there with Barth. So there's all these different kind of views on 
whether God elects individuals or whether he elects groups. So let me just answer this question real quickly before moving on. The answer is both, okay, for two reasons. First of all, the Bible also teaches that God elects individuals. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. He selects Judas before he's born to be the one who betrays Christ. That's very individual. Notice that's not a group thing. That's very individual. It's constantly the Bible will say that God is calling a prophet from his mother's womb. So one, there are all these biblical passages that talk about God's election with individuals. But second of all, please hear this, this is important. Groups are made up of individuals. There is no saying God just elects groups, but not individuals because God determines who gets in what group. If you say God just elects Israel, who determines who's born an Israelite? God. If you say God just elects the church, who determines who gets into the church through faith? God. God's the one that gives them the faith. So it doesn't get rid of this issue. It doesn't get rid of the problem of predestination and election simply to say that God elects groups, okay? Now, let's keep going. Second part of verse one into verse two, verses one B through two. Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, okay? A few things I want you to see here. Notice, Christians are those who walk in truth. We love truth. We love what is according to fact. We do not love what is contrary to fact, okay? We are to love truth. We are to care about what is right. We are to be honest in our speech. We are truth people. You ever heard somebody say this to you? You just care about being right. I absolutely care about being right because you can't be wrong to the glory of God, okay? We should care about truth. Now, when John says truth, though, he has a very, uh, a very, beautiful view and a very complex view of what truth is. Here's what I mean by that. When John says truth, he typically means a combination of three things. He means correct doctrine. He means the gospel, knowing Christ. And he means the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. That's that's really what he means by truth. That's why he talks about that this truth will be in us, will abide in us, okay? In his mind, you can't separate those things. You're either someone who walks in darkness or you're someone who walks in light. And if you walk in light, you have true doctrine, you know Christ and you have trusted in him and you believe the gospel and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These things go together. Here's what John means by truth. Here's what he says elsewhere in the gospel of John. John 18, 37 through 38. Then Pilate said to him, that's Jesus. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? That's kind of John's idea of truth. It's truth is a person. Yes, we believe what's true, but we also follow the most important truth, the the definition of truth, the, the standard of what is truth, the way, the truth, and the life, who is Christ. So here's my question for for you. Do you love the truth? Do you love the gospel? Do you love correct doctrine? Do you submit yourself to God? Do you love truth? I have a tendency to believe that most of us do love truth. There's a lot of people at Parkway, we love good theology, we love doctrine. But maybe you're someone who thinks, what's the deal with all this doctrine stuff? Can't we just go help the poor or something like this? Yes, go help the poor, but you cannot ignore the importance of doctrine. You must hold it and you must hold it well. I'll give you a little story from uh, church history. So there's a, a a famous church historian, his name is Gregory of Tours. He wrote in his histories, he's a medieval historian, and uh, he writes a story in his histories of a Christian woman who lives in this land, and there's an evil Aryan 
uh, leader, and by Aryan there, I don't mean like the Nazis, although those are certainly bad as well. I mean Aryan with an I, someone who does not think that the sun is eternal, that thinks that the sun is created. That is what is known as Arianism. So there's this Aryan leader that comes into the land. His name is Thrasimund, which is a great name. And he begins making Christians denounce their faith, right? So he takes people and he makes them deny the Trinity. He makes them denounce their faith. And at one point, there's this Christian woman and she refuses to denounce her faith. And so Thrasman says, that's fine. We're gonna baptize you into Arianism against your will. So these guys grab this woman and are bringing her towards a baptistry and she's fighting the whole way through. And as they're forcefully dunking her in the water, she is screaming out, I believe that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are the same substance. She's crying out what's orthodox. And in her protest, she even soils the water. She so cares about correct theology that she wants to fight as hard as she can, even if she's being tortured, even if she's being pushed against her will, to remain faithful to the truth to remain faithful to true doctrine. We are people of the truth, okay? That's constant. He mentions the word truth like a billion times here. This is something that is very, very important. Without knowing the truth, correct doctrine, who Christ really is, etc., you cannot fight against the lies that are given in our culture. It's hard to see a lie if you don't have the truth so that you can contrast it to it. Let me give you a few cultural lies and then we will move on a bit. Lies our culture promises to us. Here they are. Money, will make you content. It's just a lie. There's no amount of money where you won't want more, okay? Your marriage will make you happy. That's a cultural lie. The purpose of your marriage is to sanctify you. It's supposed to be hard, to say it that way. You're supposed to fight. It's supposed to be difficult because God cares about your sanctification. Lost people can get married and just be selfish. They get to try before they buy. Then they get married and they just feed off each other's selfishness. But that's not the purpose of marriage. It's not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. Here's another cultural lie. Pursue your dreams, live your life, and you'll find joy. That's not where joy is found. Here's another cultural lie. Your job gives you value. This is something a lot of men struggle with. They find their value in their job. And then feminism has even said that a woman should find her value in her job. Let me be clear. No one in here will find their value in their job, male or female. Okay? That's not where value is found. You should have the same chances other people have. That's a cultural lie. God gives some talents to some and not to others. Not everything's gonna be fair in that sense. If you were married to someone else, then you would be happy. You just married the wrong person. That's a cultural lie. The world is all about you. You are important. That's a cultural lie. Let me say something that maybe your mother never had the guts to tell you. You and I are not important, okay? Okay, let me be clear. Compared to animals, other animals, we are important. But compared to God, we are not important, okay? As I teach my kids in our house when we talk about humanity, I I define us as special animals, okay? We're better than dogs and stuff, but we're still just animals. We're still just creatures. We're not like the creator. Another cultural lie, people should care about your views on things. Why do you think that? That's a lie. Not everyone is an expert on everything. I think you see this every day on social media. You should have an equal say in what happens. That's a cultural lie. You should be quick to be offended and call people out. That's a cultural lie. There are all these lies going on in our culture unless you're someone of the truth. You know the scriptures, you know true doctrine, you know Christ. You're not gonna be able to guard against these cultural lies. Now, one more thing before we move to verse three. Notice that Christians are to love other Christians. Notice that it says here, but also all who know the truth. What John is saying is, dear church, dear elect lady, I love you. I'm in the truth, you're in the truth, and guess who else loves you? Other people in the truth, other Christians, okay? That our faith is a corporate faith. 
that we love one another, that we care for one another. Let me say it this way. I love that Christianity attracts a whole variety of people, okay? There are black Christians and white Christians and Asian Christians and Hispanic Christians, etc. There are rich people who love Jesus and poor people who love Jesus. There are educated people who love Jesus and uneducated people that love Jesus. There are people that speak uh, one language that love Jesus and people that speak another language that love Jesus. What I love about that is that when Christ says that if he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself, the gospel produces this beautiful mosaic of people that follow Christ. Diversity, when it's around a unity, is a good thing. The unity being the gospel. Diversity, when there's no unity, is just called division. Diversity for diversity's sake is not a virtue. Diversity is good when there is something to center it, when there is something to unify around, and that's what the gospel does. When you become a Christian, I think there's a tendency for us to think it's just me and God. No, no, no. It's you and God and the church. Not only does God love you and care for you and care about your spiritual growth, others care for you. Here at Parkway, at other churches around the world, there are the Christians right now in China that I will never meet, but there's a sense in which my heart already goes out to them because we're of the same faith. And so notice that this isn't just an individual thing. This is a corporate thing. Verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God, the father, and from Jesus Christ, the father's son in truth and love. Now, before I get into what verse three means, let me tell you what I think is probably in the back of John's mind as he's writing this, okay? We've talked about this in several theological equipping lectures that there is something outside of the Bible called the Apocrypha, okay? It's not part of scripture. It was not originally part of the Hebrew Bible. It's not something the Jews consider to be scripture. It's this collection of books, basically of Jewish history in between the time of the Old and the New Testament, okay? Jeff talked about it a few weeks ago on what books belong in the Bible. Now, many, many Jews had read those different books. Even if they didn't think they were scripture, they were at least familiar with them. And so what many scholars think here is as John is writing, he might have in mind a reference to one of those books. Doesn't mean that those books are inspired. It just means that in the same way that I might quote from the movie, The Matrix or something, that doesn't mean I think The Matrix is happening and real. I'm just using that as a reference. What some people think John is doing here is using a reference from the Apocrypha. The Book of Wisdom 3.9 says this. Notice the similarity of language with love and peace and all that kind of stuff. Look at this. Those who trust in him will understand truth. There's the term truth. And the faithful will abide, we've seen that word abide, with him in love. There's the idea of love. Because grace another term we just saw here, and mercy, another term we just saw here, are upon his holy ones and he watches over his elect. There's the phrase again. So there's a lot of similarities between these two, uh, two, idea, two passages, the one from the book of wisdom and the one here in 2 John. And that might be something John's thinking of as he goes. But let's look at verse three. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Who is it from? From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. First thing I want you to see the things that the human heart most longs for. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. And peace, this idea of shalom, of wholeness, of contentment, of that peace that surpasses understanding. Those things come from God and God alone. God is the one who gives you the good things. God is the one who saves you. You don't do the stuff. God does the stuff. I'll give you an example. So my daughter is two and sometimes she wants to play catch. But I don't know if you know this or not, but a two-year-old can't play catch. So I can't just like put her at the other end of the room and just like throw a slider her way or something like that. Instead, what I do is she stands there and I take a ball and I say, are you ready? And she says, "Uh uh-huh. But I know she's not ready because her eyes aren't watching the ball. So for whatever reason, when I throw her the ball, she doesn't even look at me. She just stares straight ahead. I don't know what she's looking at. 
I'm like, are you ready? Watch the ball. You're gonna watch the ball? Okay. And then she just stares straight ahead and I throw the ball and her eyes don't move and then it hits her in the head, okay? That's our game of catch. I have to always use a soft ball because she's not gonna catch it. So what I will do is I will set her down and I will say, okay, honey, stand right here. Don't move. Put out your arms like this. And I put her arms where they need to go and I say, okay, don't move. And I take a step back and I take the ball and I toss it into her arms and she doesn't even grab it. It just lands in her arms, okay? Now, what does she say once the ball is in her arm? She says, I caught it. And I think, you caught it? You did nothing. Like literally, I made you in a sense. I put you there. I moved your arms. I took the ball that you didn't have. I put it in your arms. You didn't do anything. And what do you say? I caught it. I think a lot of us do that with our faith. God is the one who regenerates us. God is the one who gives us faith. God is the one who makes us believe in Christ. God is the one who does all the stuff. And we say, I I chose Christ. I, I believed, it was me. No, 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 no. God is the one who is doing the stuff. He's the one that gives the grace. He's the one that gives the mercy. He's the one that gives the love. Grace, mercy, and peace. Look at this next phrase, will be with us. Now, let me tell you why John is saying this. Again, John is writing these letters to encourage Christians to not give in to the heretics, to not give in to the false teachers, the false Christians, those that have broken away from the church and have started their own little weird cult church, okay? John is encouraging his, the, the true Christians to stay faithful. And so I think the reason he is telling them this is as an encouragement. He's saying, listen, though you might be tempted, though you might want to run away, though you might think that maybe you're wrong, though these false teachers are promising peace, you need to understand, stay steadfast in the faith because this is a promise that grace, mercy, and peace from God will be with you. It will be yours. That's what a good leader does. So if I can just mention a quick cultural commentary. Throughout this whole coronavirus thing, you've seen government officials respond in one of two ways. Some of them have responded with absolute cowardice, if I can be honest. Absolute fear and hysteria, and that's all they've given, okay? That's how some government officials have responded to this thing. That's not good leadership. Others, though, have said, others have responded in a good way. Others have said, this is a serious deal. We need to to take care of people. But look at me, everybody's going to be okay. Not everyone, but we as a society are gonna be okay. We are gonna defeat this virus. We're gonna make it through this. Yes, it's difficult, but calm down. You see, some have responded only out of fear. Others have had caution, but have responded with confidence, has responded with encouragement, has responded with hope. You see, a winner says, we're going to win even if it's hard. A loser says, I'm not sure we're gonna win. And what John is doing is he is being here a winner. He is being a good leader. He is saying the danger of the false teachers, like the danger of coronavirus, it's real, but Christ is stronger and Christ is better and there is hope. And so he is being encouraging. He is being uh, loving. He is being a good leader. He is giving people hope. So let me give you some phrases of encouragement, okay? So what he's trying to say is he's trying to say, these good things are yours in Christ. These good things will be with you. You need to hear that. Let me give you a few of those encouraging things if you're struggling with your faith today. First of all, if you're a Christian, you need to hear this. You are not going to hell. Hell is real. It's just not real for you if you are a Christian. You cannot lose your salvation because it's not up for you to lose. It's not your salvation, it's God's salvation, and you don't get to tell him who he gets to keep. You cannot outsend the grace of God. Some of you need to hear this truth. 
Some of you need to hear this confidence. Some of you need to hear this encouragement. You can't out the grace of God. It's almost like some of you want grace so bad, you're almost digging in the dirt and squeezing the mud, trying to get the water of God's grace. And if you would but look up, you would see there's an entire lake of it in front of you. You can't out the grace of God. He's infinite. He's infinite. You can have imperfect faith and imperfect repentance. In fact, that's the only kind you can have. You don't have perfect faith this side of eternity, right? So even as I say, if you're a Christian, you're not going to hell and you think to yourself, but what if I'm not a Christian? That's just a way you're trying to trick yourself from not resting, from not being able to enjoy God's good gifts, to not be able to know that you're saved. You don't have to know, okay? It's true even if you doubt it. Just like I say, two plus two is four is true even if you doubt it, okay? You can have imperfect faith and imperfect repentance. You only need a mustard seed. You can say, I believe, help my unbelief, like that guy does in the Gospels to Jesus. Your salvation is not based on you getting better or improving. God's love for you is not based on you getting better or improving. Listen, everything is going to be okay if you're a Christian. Let me give you best and worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, if you're a Christian, is eternal bliss. That's worst case. That's worst case scenario. Best case scenario is you also get some good stuff now and then eternal bliss. Those are both pretty good options that God will always be with you regardless of what happens. You might suffer some now and then there's eternal bliss or you have a lot of good things now, don't suffer much now and then there's eternal bliss. Those are your two options as a Christian. So you need to hear what John is saying, that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us because it's not dependent upon us. It's from God. It's from God. That's the idea. That's the idea. I'm reading a book called uh, Fortitude. It's written by a guy named Dan Crenshaw. If you don't know who Dan Crenshaw is, he is a, uh, he's a representative from Texas in the House of Representatives. And you've probably seen him. He has a cool looking beard and he has an eye patch because when he was fighting in Afghanistan, his buddy stepped on an IED and it blew up in his face, okay? And he wrote this book. And one of the chapters of this book is called No Plan B, okay? It's called No Plan B. And here's what he means by this chapter. Not that you cannot make contingency plans. Not that you cannot change your mind or something like that. Here's what he means by no plan B. That with any goal you have, you must know that that's plan A and it's your only option. To entertain plan B is to entertain failure. To entertain plan B is to entertain failure. So for example, when his face got blown up, he completely lost one eye. The other eye, the doctors told him that he would never see again. They said to him, there is virtually no chance that you will ever see again. And he said, the only thing I heard was the word virtually. I knew I was going to see again. It wasn't an option not to. So they had to do surgery. He had to lay face down for six weeks blind in the dark while an air bubble held his retina up against his eye. And then after that six weeks, he was able to see. He said when he was running for Congress, he just knew there's no plan B. I'm going to win this. I'm gonna do whatever I need to, to win this. There's no plan. To entertain plan B is to entertain failure. When he was training to become a Navy SEAL going through BUDS, he just knew, I'm not gonna drop out. That's not an option. There's only plan A. Now, here's why I tell you that. When it comes to the promises of God, stop having a plan B. If God has promised you something, it's true and it's going to happen and you can rest on it. What happens is you have security in your faith and then you think, what if I'm really lost because I struggle with some sin? That's entertaining plan B. Or you think, okay, God loves me, but does he really because this other person's way holier than me and shouldn't I be further along than I am? And you're entertaining plan B. When God has promised you something, when he's given you some promise in his word, you don't have to wonder whether or not it's true. You can hang your hat on it. You can take it to the bank, okay? 
That's what, that's what John is trying to do with this encouragement. That's what John is trying to do by saying, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. This is not a maybe, this is a fact. This is something you can anchor your soul into, okay? Last part here. <clears throat> Verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Now, why does John here mention both father and son? Why doesn't he just say, these good things will be to us from God? Here's why. John's opponents have been denying who Christ is. We've seen this in 1 John, we'll continue to see it. They've been denying his God's son. They've been denying that the Messiah has come. They've been denying that they need atonement for their sins. And so what John is trying to do is he's gonna continue hitting the theme of you must believe in Christ and you must believe in the right Christ. So I wanna spend some time unpacking who the Trinitarian God of the Bible is. I can't think of a better way to end this lesson than the way that John ends it, by appealing to the fact that though John is a monotheist, he only believes there's one God. The Jews would say that every day, the Shema, that there's only one God. That he somehow sees Jesus as this one God and somehow sees the Spirit as this one God. It's really, really important, not just that you say you follow God, but that you follow the right God. Let me give you an example that came up this week that just happened, which I think was really funny and weird. So I got a letter here at the church from Tennessee. Okay, it was postmarked. I thought maybe somebody was trying to trick me or play a prank on me at first uh, or something in the church, but it was postmarked. It was from Tennessee and it was a letter and I opened it and I thought maybe it's somebody in Tennessee saying, I listened to, you know, Parkway's podcast online and I enjoy it or whatever. So I open it up and there's a letter and it says, dear Mr. Lee, and then it starts to talk about how much this guy loves baseball. He says that he is a baseball coach in Tennessee, that he loved playing baseball, that he and his boys collect baseball cards and they ask different famous baseball players to sign them. That's a hobby that he has with his kids. He talks about how much he likes the Dodgers. And then I keep reading the letter and a baseball card falls out. And guess who's on the baseball card? Someone named Zach Lee. Not me, a different Zach Lee. This guy, apparently there's a pro baseball player named Zach Lee who played for the Dodgers. I think he plays for the Padres or somebody now. He played for the Dodgers. He's about my age. His name is Zach Lee. He has a beard and kind of looks like me. We were born in the same hometown. The guy from Tennessee thought that I was that Zach Lee. This guy had probably Googled Zach Lee and then my name came up for Parkway's website. And then he thought to himself, oh, this guy was a pro baseball player. I guess now he's in ministry. So in his card, he said, I'm so thankful for both your career in baseball and in ministry. And I thought, what is it? Because at first I thought maybe he had heard my story of how I tried out for a pro team, but that wasn't it. He kept talking about the Dodgers and he had this card. So I had to write him back. Now here's what I didn't do. I didn't just sign the card, Zach Lee, and send it back to him because that's what he was asking for. I sent him a letter and said, hey, listen, I'm not the real Zach Lee. I'm merely a shadow apparently to this other guy. You know, I'm sure he and I make about the same salary, me and this other pro baseball player, Zach Lee. We're, we're very similar. We have beards, but I'm not, he's the real Zach Lee. I'm just the fake. So I had to write him this letter and say, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing with your kids. I don't want to ruin your baseball card. So I'm sending it back to you, but I'm a fake Zach Lee. I'm not the real Zach Lee. Sincerely, a different Zach Lee. Now, here's why I tell you that story. It's very important that you get the person right. Not just someone who has the same name. It's very important that you get the person right. You can't just be any Zach Lee. You have to be the baseball player, Zach Lee, for this guy, okay? For this guy. Well, listen, it's the same way with Christ. You can't just say, I follow someone named Jesus. That doesn't work. You have to follow the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus that the church throughout 2,000 years has historically affirmed as the real Jesus, as the true Jesus, 
okay? There aren't actually other Jesuses. Those are false views of Jesus, but you have to follow the true Jesus. So what I wanna do is I wanna read some from the Athanasian Creed, okay? I wanna read some from the Athanasian Creed. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's an excellent creed. It's a very famous creed throughout church history. And I wanna point out a few things. So I wanna end by doing a little Trinitarianism. So this will be a little more advanced than normal, maybe like Trinitarianism 201 or something like that. But let me uh, read a part of this creed and we'll talk about it as we go. It says this, the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now notice that there is, if, if you're thinking of the Son or the Spirit as less than the Father in any way, in any category, that is heresy. The different members of the Trinity are not different vertically, they're different horizontally. Okay, do you understand? Co-equal, co-majesty, co-glory, etc. It says this, what quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Spirit has. Notice that, that there is no attribute that one member of the Trinity has that the others do not when it pertains to their deity. You cannot say that the Father is stronger than the Son or older than the Son or that he knows things that the Son doesn't know. That's what the heretic Arius said when Jesus says he doesn't know when he's coming back. He said that Jesus doesn't know all the stuff the Father knows. And the church said, no, silly. That's talking about in his humanity, his deity. There is nothing that makes him less than the father. Notice that what quality the father has, the son has and the Holy Spirit has. The father is eternal, the son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Here's the first thing that I wanna mention with the Trinity, okay? Stop accidentally being tritheistic, okay? You need to understand there is only one God. God has only one mind. If you're thinking of God as like three minds, three agencies, the church has condemned that as being heretical. God has one mind, one will. There's only one being in the universe who's God. Don't think of the Trinity like in Greek mythology. So don't think that you've got like Zeus and then Apollo is the son of Zeus, but they're the same substance because they're both divine. They're both gods or something like that. That is not what the church means by substance. What we mean is there's only one being who is God, okay? The father is that one being, the son is that one being, and the spirit is that one being. Jesus is not God junior, he's God. Maybe that's a good way to say it. He's distinct from the father, the son is distinct from the father, but he is the same substance as the father, okay? To say it another way, imagine that you have a circle. God's not a circle, but pretend for a second that he's a circle. That one circle, the Father is that one circle, the Son is that one circle, and the Spirit is that one circle. There are not three circles. The thickness of the lines of the circle don't change from member to member of the Trinity. The circle's color does not change from member to member of the Trinity. There's only one God. The creed continues. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Listen to this next part. Nothing is greater or smaller. There's no attribute that one member of the Trinity has that the other member doesn't have or has to a lesser degree or to a higher degree. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. Notice nothing. Not just their essence, no attribute they have. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity and their unity and their unity and their Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. We teach at Parkway what the church has always taught, that there's only one God, but somehow this God is three distinct persons at the same time. By person, we don't mean people. That would be three gods. We mean something different by person. So maybe here's a good question. What is it that makes the members of the Trinity different from one another? Have you ever wondered that? Because it can't be anything that they have in common. 
It can't be anything related to their deity because that's exactly the same, homoousios, okay? So it can't be that the, the father is stronger than the son because the son's also strong. And if they're strong, they're equally strong. It can't be that the father is wiser than the son because again, if they're the same substance, they're equally wise. So what is it that makes the members of the Trinity different? Now, what some people have said is it's the job that they have. It's the role that they play. The early church actually condemned that as a heresy. Do you know why? Because the distinctions in the persons of the Trinity has to be real, not just functional. It has to be something the Trinity is, not just something the Trinity does. Not to mention that the son is not doing all the job of dying for the world or whatever back in eternity, okay? So what is the answer to what distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit? And here's the answer. Whatever it is, it has to be something that is unique to each person. It can't be something they have in common, right? Their, their being or their essence, that's the same. It has to be something that makes them unique. It has to be something that makes them different from the other members of the Trinity. And that answer is simply that the Father and the Father alone is the Father, the Son and the Son alone is the Son, and the Spirit and the Spirit alone is the Spirit, okay? Now, let me unpack what that means, because I'm not just saying there's a difference in name. Here, let me give an example that Athanasius himself uses that I think is very helpful. Bear with me. By the way, I know this is deep. Some of you are like, your eyes have gone crossed, and you look like the guy from A Beautiful Mind drawing up on the, the window all the math formulas. Listen, the Trinity is supposed to be mysterious. You're not supposed to be able to figure it out. Every time you think you fully figured it out, you fall into heresy. Don't try to make the Trinity easy for your kids. Let them know that God is a mystery. But here's at least a helpful example that Athanasius gives, okay, about the Father and the Son. Imagine that you have a well full of water, okay? We all know what a well is. We all know what water is. And that water flows out onto the ground. Now, notice, it's the same water. The water that's in the well that has flowed out onto the ground, it's the same temperature. It's the same color. It has the same H2O makeup. It's the same water. What is the difference between the water that's in the well and the water that's on the ground? You ready? The water on the ground has a fromness that the well itself does not have, okay? The well is like the father and the water on the ground is like the son. Same water, but the son has a fromness. That's what it means when the church says he's eternally begotten. It doesn't mean that he was created just a long time ago in eternity. It means that there's this fromness from the father, and furthermore, what Athanasius goes on to say is he says, now take that analogy and imagine that there is no flow, right? Because it's not like you have the father and then the son like osmosticizes off of him or something like that. There is no flow. The son is co-equal and co-eternal with the father. You just turn, you see a well, you see water on the ground at the same time. They happen at the same time. That is the analogy that Athanasius gives of what distinguishes father, son, and spirit. That the father is unbegotten eternally, that the Son is eternally begotten, and that the Spirit eternally proceeds, okay? The Spirit eternally proceeds, meaning the Father is eternally the Father, the Son eternally stands in relationship as Son to the Father, and the Spirit eternally stands in relationship as Spirit to the Father and the Son. If that blows your mind, it should. The reason I tell you all of this is because part of worshiping the right God means that you leave the mystery of the Trinity. You don't do what John's heretical opponents are doing and try to get rid of that. You say, there's a real distinction between the members of the Trinity, even if I can't put all the words to it, but yet there's only one God. There are not three gods. He's not cut up into three parts. I don't know how I hold them all together, but they're both true, and so I'm just gonna hang on to it. I'm just gonna hang on to it. I'm just gonna believe the Trinity, even if I can't understand it, because it's always better to believe God than to try to fully understand God. The Athanasian Creed states the differences in the members of the Trinity like this. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. 
The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. God doesn't have two sons. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay? Proceeds from the Father and the Son. As we begin this book in 2 John, may we do what John is doing and avoid what his opponents are doing. May we rejoice in grace, rejoice in love. May we love the church, the elect lady, and may we relish in the blessings given to us by our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this uh, text. I pray that you would be with us, that you would encourage us, that you would change our hearts, that you would help us love you more. We pray for unity in our church as we hopefully begin meeting again, that uh, we wouldn't judge others on this issue that's different than us, that uh, if some people need to stay home, that's fine. If some people wanna come, that's fine. If somebody wants to wear a mask, that's fine. If they don't wanna wear a mask, that's fine. I pray that we would have love, that we would see the church as your bride and love her like you love her. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't just left us in the dark. We thank you that you've revealed to us in black and white who you are through your scriptures. We confess that there is but one God, not three gods. There is only one God. And yet this one God is Trinity. And we worship this Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity as the creed says. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.